Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our new series on the 10 words with Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts. Here, they're going to discuss the second word on the making of graven images. We hope that you are encouraged and sharpened by this conversation over this passage. And here are Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts discussing the second word. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart. I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, who is on an extended visit to Birmingham. And so we have him live for uh, a number of episodes of the podcast. Uh, Brian Motes is here to make sure that we stay on track and to throw in an occasional disrupting question from the gallery. Uh, we're in the middle of a series of uh, discussions of the Ten Words, uh, the so-called Ten Commandments, as uh, we've talked about, I think, on every episode during this series. We're calling them the Ten Words because that's the biblical terminology. And that's important because it highlights the fact that we're dealing with something more than just a, a series of commandments. These are not just imperatives, but there are promises and warnings and statements about who God is that are part of the Ten Words. And so trying to discipline ourselves to use that terminology uh, is a way of uh, reminding us of that of that fact. Uh, we've looked at uh, the overall arrangement of the Ten Words. We looked at some structural features of the Ten Words, and we've also uh, started into the specifics. So we looked at the first word in the last episode, and today we're going to be discussing the second word. And I, I have to go back to something we discussed earlier, which is the, the arrangement of the, the, the counting of the ten words, which has been a matter of some, I don't know if it's been dispute, but there's difference between different traditions about how they're counted. Um, and so I refer you back to some previous episode, I don't remember which one, where we discussed uh, the numbering that we're using. And according to our numbering, which is the traditional Reformed numbering and also the numbering that the Orthodox Church uses, the first commandment is a prohibition of idolatry. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Uh, as we discussed it a few episodes ago, verses 2 and 3 of Exodus, both the Lord's introduction of himself and also thou shalt have no other gods before me, both those verses are part of the first commandment, the first word. And then the second word prohibits a form of liturgical idolatry. It's not about worshiping other gods, but it's about how we worship the true God. And so verses 4 through 6 in Exodus 20 uh, are about uh, that form of liturgical idolatry, which is a prohibition of images or graven images or likeness and the use of those images in worship. So uh, that's the, as, as I said, that's following the traditional reform numbering. If you look at Catholic or Lutheran treatments of the Ten Words, they'll combine those two into one uh, single commandment against idolatry, but uh, we're distinguishing between different forms of idolatry. There's the outright idolatry of serving and worshiping other gods, and then there's the more subtle idolatry of worshiping the true God, but doing it in a false, with through false means. And the specific false means that are mentioned here are idols, images, likenesses uh, that are uh, used as uh, means of communication with God. And just to clarify what's what's permit, what's permitted prohibited here, 
this commandment has, in reform circles, unfortunately gotten tangled up with questions about whether God can be depicted, whether Jesus can be depicted. Uh, that's really not what the commandment is dealing with. The commandment is dealing with uh, the use of depictions, whether they're mostly, I think, of uh, graven images, which means statues, uh, which had been, was used typically in the ancient world. If it's a prohibition of making of images, then it's a prohibition of making images of anything, of everything, I should say. If we take verse 4 in isolation, you shall not make for yourself an image or a likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. That covers everything. There is nothing, either in, nothing that's not in heaven or earth or in the water under the earth. If we're prohibited from making images of things in those zones, we're prohibited from making images of everything. But that can't be what the commandment is saying because in a few chapters after this, the Lord is commanding Israel to make graven images of cherubim uh, that are going to be placed on the ark. He's telling them to make figures of cherubim and other things that are woven into the curtains of the tabernacle. The high priest has uh, pomegranates that are at the bottom of his robe alternating with bells. Uh, there, there are a lot of things that are images of earthly things or heavenly things for that matter in the tabernacle and the Lord commands those things to be made. So uh, we can't take the second word as a prohibition of making of images of these things because that would conflict with what the Lord says later. There must be some something more specific. So we need to take verses 4 and 5 together. What we're prohibited from doing is making these images for the purpose of serving them or prostrating ourselves before them. Those are the two verbs that are used. Uh, the word worship really means to prostrate oneself. Serve is um, liturgical service. What Israel's prohibited from doing is performing liturgical service uh, before an image and prostrating themselves before that image. First breaking of this would seem to be the instant with the golden calf, which you have in um, immediately after the giving of the law, that Israel bows down to a calf and worships it as Yahweh that this is identified as the one that brought them out of Egypt. I think another interesting example in the history of, e of Israel is the bronze serpent that Moses raises up, that they're supposed to look to and find healing, but yet later on in the history of um, Second Kings, it becomes an, ob an object of false worship itself, um, Nehushtan, and the need for it to be bro brought down at that point along with the Asherah poles highlights maybe the difference between proper uses of images in worship and the service of God and false use of images. Yeah, and just to highlight something you said from the golden calf incident, when, Mo when Aaron sets up the golden calf, the announcement is, behold your God who led you out of Egypt. So it's the God of the Exodus that he claims to worship. The same thing is true of Jeroboam, the first in the book of Kings who sets up golden calves at uh, Dan and at Bethel, at the borders of the Northern Kingdom. And he says the same thing. These, these are images that are used for worshiping of the God of the Exodus. So the, the point of this, those incidents, the, the sin in those incidents is not that Israel is worshiping another God like Baal or Molech or something else, uh, but that they are worshiping the God of the Exodus, Yahweh, but they're worshiping through these images. And that... Um, you pointed out a number of times in our work as we work through the uh, the ten words here um, 
And uh, as I guess also during our uh, time in London earlier this year, uh, pointing out that uh, the, the uh, 10 words correspond to different sections of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy from Deuteronomy 5 to about chapter 26 or so is laying, it's organized by the 10 words. And if, when we look at the second word section of Deuteronomy, then we can see that there's a more expansive set of instructions. It doesn't just have to do with images, but it has to do with place of worship. It has to do with other certain modes of worship. And those are all classified under the second word. Why do you think there's such an emphasis upon visual images? Um, that contrast between what we see and what we hear has been one that's emphasized by a number of people in discussing principles of Old Testament and New Testament worship that God distinguishes between uh, even the distinction between our experience of seeing where we see and we judge and we hear and we obey or the focus upon the eye as the organ by which we primarily engage with the world as opposed to the ear as the primary organ. Do you think there's a that this commandment points us in that sort of direction as well? Yeah, I, th I think that that contrast of the eye and the ear is operating in the background, and that's more explicit in Deuteronomy, not in the statement of the ten words, but earlier in Deuteronomy 4, where Moses is warning Israel, watch yourself carefully since you did not see any form on the day that Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And beware lest you lift up your eyes to the heavens and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away to worship and serve them, those which the Lord has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So that that's a, obviously an expansion of the prohibition of making and serving a graven image. But it begins with this reminder that they did not see an image on the mountain, and instead they heard the Lord speaking to them. I think the other, the other hint of that is in, I guess it's the second time that Moses receives the ta tablets of the law. Uh, the, the tablets are said to be graven, and uh, the, the, same, the same word is used to describe uh, the formation of the tablets uh, that contain the ten words and the formation of the images that are prohibited. So there's this contrast between the legitimate graven thing, which is the, the it's a verbal artifact. And a, kept out of sight. Right, and kept out of sight, as opposed to the uh, visual graven thing that's prohibited. Uh, and I think what, what you were saying um, about the, the biblical symbolism and the biblical associations with the eye and the ear, I think are those are those would be the most immediate way to extrapolate, I guess, uh, biblically. The eye is an organ of judgment. The eye is an organ of scrutiny. The ear is an organ of reception uh, and of uh, of obedience. And in in the Torah, especially, to hear is virtually synonymous with obeying. Uh, Hear, O Israel, Lord your God is one. That's the the great confession, as it were, of Israel. And it begins with the summons to hear the voice of the Lord. Uh, in the New Testament, I think we we could match this up. Doesn't it? Doesn't exactly match up. But Paul's language of contrasting uh, walking by faith as opposed to walking by sight. Obviously, walking by sight is has to do with the eye. I think walking by faith means, among other things, walking according to the word that you're receiving in the ear. 
Uh, so things, even things that you can't see, you walk according to the things you can't see, things that you are not yet seen, as Hebrews 11 puts it. Walking by faith means walking by things that are not yet seen, uh, but are promised. So you're, you're, you know you're walking in the right direction because uh, the Lord has promised blessing along this path, but even though you can't see uh, the destination, you can't see where you're going. So I think that, yeah, that contrast is, is operative in Scripture. And I think that that, I'd like to hear your comments and thoughts on this because I know you've thought about this. I think that that's one of the ways I've tried to make the second word uh, applicable to contemporary cultural issues. I mean, so much of our culture is uh, eye-driven, visual-driven, screen-driven. And uh, you could say it's also ear-driven because we're listening to things. But uh, it does seem like you've, you've uh, referred to the... Uh, is it DeBoard's, books, yeah. DeBoard's book, uh, The Society of the Spectacle, uh, on occasion. So I'm curious to hear how you think that plays out, this contrast of eye and ear plays out in contemporary cultural issues. Well, one thing about the eye and the ear more generally in our society is we have a saturated horizon um, very often, particularly as we're engaging online, as we're engaging in a society that's very much bombarding us with images it's very difficult to have a sense of something beyond that. Um, the eye has, uh, it has a horizon that it views. The ear has a different sort of horizon. The horizon of the ear is silence. And beyond that horizon that we experience of the ear is one that can betoken presence in certain respects. If you go into a, a very large building and you have a sense of the silence of a place it can be something that is charged it, it, there's a charged reality there in a way that the empty horizon does not quite um, serve in the same way so there's a different phenomenology of sight and sound I think that is part of what's going on here also the degree to which sight puts things at our disposal Sight enables us to get a grasp on things. Whereas when we hear things or don't hear things, hearing to hear something is connected with life. Living things make sound. And God is the God who speaks. He's the God who makes a noise, as it were. Um, and our inability to control God and put him at our, our disposal, I think, is in part um, one of the reasons for the restrictions on images. Because idol. An idol, among other things, is a god technology, a technology to enable us to get a grasp upon God, to get him to act in our favor, to manipulate God. And so, in many ways, we have our own sorts of god technologies, perhaps, and a return to the emphasis upon the voice, the word of God that comes to us in history and occurs in time rather than something that we can lock into the gaze of our control. I think recovery of that may be important for overcoming, for diagnosing and overcoming our own forms of idol making. Yeah. I think it, I think it was uh, Hans Jonas, I came across a comment, I may, may be mistaken the source, but uh, that sight is the, the org, the, or the sense of simultaneity. Uh, you see things in a in a in a glance. And you think of the experience of different forms of art. You see, if you look at a painting for a long time, you can notice things you hadn't seen. But you can get the you can get the gist in a moment, just at a glimpse. Uh, you can't get the gist of a piece of music at a glimpse or a poem. You have to work your way through temporally, 
Uh, and so there's a there's a different relation to time that's part of it. And I think you, you mentioned the different relation to or the fact that uh, uh, sound is a is related to life to the the thing the the being inside the central sanctuary the inner sanctuary of Israel is a living God who speaks not a, not an image. This is a point that Walter Ong makes at the beginning of his presence of the word. He imagines uh, going through a, a jungle and you come across the carcass of an elephant and you might poke him a few times to make sure he's dead, but you can you can see him. He's there. But as long as he's not making any noise, he's pretty safe to approach. But if you're walking through the jungle and you hear an elephant, <laughs> then it's time to run for cover because the sound is the signal of a living thing, of a living danger. So, uh, yeah, I think those things are, all, those are, uh, are bound up with this contrast. This is a commandment that's not just a commandment, as we see in the first five. It's a commandment attached to a reason. Um, to the jealousy of God um, and the fact of his judgment upon people who um, hate him. And as we see Paul exploring some of these themes in Romans 1, there is a connection, I think, of the image, the use of images and the worshipping of images to, the, to an opposition to God's otherness, a breaking down of God to the level of his creation. And the likeness that we have between God and creatures of the earth and living um, beasts and creeping things and even creatures of the heavens, that that likeness is something that reduces God and is connected with a hatred of God that ultimately turns in upon ourselves as his images. How can we unpack that within our current context? Because that seems very relevant to us our desire to knock God down to the size of his creation. You're alluding there to Romans 1 and Paul's discussion of idolatry and the sequence of idolatry to sexual sin to kind of social and moral chaos that in, that's at the end of that chapter. I think you could maybe look at this in two different contexts. You, you can look, think of the way that Christians are theologically or liturgically reducing God to manageable size. I'm not talking at this point about Orthodox use of icons or other traditions that use icons. We'll, we'll come to that in a minute. But I think kind of pop evangelicalism where God has turned into a, a mechanism for our personal fulfillment in prosperity gospel and other sorts of movements that bump up against prosperity gospel. In some ways, this is Luther's great horror is uh, that he would commit the kind of uh, this kind of idolatry, that he would instrumentalize God, that turn God into a, a means for the satisfaction of his own needs rather than worshiping the true God. Any God that's just a means for satisfaction of your desires can't be the true God uh, because uh, God won't be instrumentalized. <laughs> so I think you, you could see it in that kind of that kind of setting. Again, I, I think that I'm thinking theologically and liturgically, you'd have that kind of uh, diminishment, even, even if you're not talking about the use of graven images or, or icons or something that uh, in pop evangelicalism, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have that kind of usage directly or practice directly in play. But you'd have similar kinds of reductions uh, and uh, confinements and, and a techno God technologies, as you said. And I think that you, know, you could find similar things going on in kind of secular critiques or secular assaults on Christianity. Um, this is a point that uh, I have some 
reservations about the way that David Bentley Hart approaches these kinds of questions. But uh, one of the points I think is right on target is that the, the new atheists are attacking a being that is not the god of Christian theology. <laughs> uh, they're attacking a, a kind of a finite, a very, very powerful, uh, super powerful, but, but kind of finite being uh, that uh, no, uh, Christian, uh, no Christian theology actually uh, proposes. Uh, and so you, you have that kind of confinement, makes you, know, you create a, a straw god and then you attack the straw god. And there seems to be, um, when we read the first and second commandments next to each other, there seems to be a close connection. They're both dealing with the same sort of problem from different directions. So the first commandment, as we have some other God besides the true God, who is the Lord, that that is also something that occurs indirectly through the use of idols. So we may be intending to worship the true God through using idols, but yet that will inexorably lead to a breakdown of any true theology and the need to maintain proper forms of worship, I think, is part and parcel of true theology. And there, I think, also we might think about the way in which our worship is supposed to, among other things, to direct us beyond itself to the God who transcends it. And often our worship can be so filled with our own images, our own words, even if it's directed in principle towards God, it can end up become, becoming turned in on ourselves. And true liturgy, I think, should always have in mind that second commandment that, first of all, we don't want to draw people's attention to something other than the true God. And also the way that that is connected to the first commandment, that the transcendence of God is, there is a presence in our worship that cannot be controlled, that cannot be con contained or constrained. And our worship is always oriented relative to that. There's a, a danger on that side too. Uh, uh, Moshe Halbertal in his book on idolatry talks about the, the use of the second commandment in, uh, he, I think it begins with Maimonides and uh, sees it in uh, Maimonides and but also in a lot of modern thinkers that turned the second commandment against scripture and uh, were, were prohibited from making graven images in order to bow down and serve them. Maimonides says we're also prohibited from making verbal images. And so these verbal images that scripture gives us, that, that actually verbal descriptions of God, God's own description of himself, uh, are subject to the same kind of critique. And we need to move beyond the... the uh, the words and the revelation, the, the verbal revelation of Scripture in order to have contact with the God is beyond word. Um, so you, you can have the, uh, you can have the, uh, that's a, a use of the second commandment that's, again, turned against the, the, the character of Scripture. And, you know, you're looking for a God that's beyond word. You're looking for God other than the God of Scripture because the God of Scripture is the God who is eternally word. Um, so I wanted to highlight too. You you bring out one part of the warning, but there's uh, you you mentioned the jealousy that uh, is uh, emphasized in verse five, uh, and that jealousy in in scripture is a it operates in a marital context. The Lord is jealous of Israel because he's husband to Israel. Israel is the bride who should be devoted to her husband, but she keeps looking after other gods, and she's uh, attracted to the images of 
attracted to images rather than to the true God. Uh, and so the, what, what's, uh, the, the, Lord's, uh, the Lord wants the attention of Israel. He's jealous for the attention of Israel. And when Israel turns away to um, uh, devote herself to images, then uh, God's jealousy is aroused. The, the, the analogy I've been using is uh, that, you know, you think of a, um, I figured it would be a, maybe a Black Mirror episode uh, where a, a husband is, or wife is, say a husband is devoted to portraits of his wife. Uh, he dotes on them, he speaks to them, he spends his time gazing at portraits of his wife, but ignores his actual wife. <laughs> uh, she would be properly jealous of his attention. She would be arousing him to jealousy, and that's what—that's the way that the Lord is describing this situation with uh, images. Those uh, Israelites who devote themselves to images are um, not paying attention to the husband that they are—that uh, they're actually committed to. We should also talk about the—I mean—the the contemporary application of this. Uh, the most uh, immediate one would be. Uh, to uh, orthodoxy, where icon veneration plays a major role. Uh, there are various forms of veneration that play significant roles in other Christian traditions, other um, in, in, in Catholic traditions, in the Catholic Roman Catholic tradition, and also in some Anglo-Catholic settings. You have uh, veneration of images or veneration of objects that are, um, I think, that I believe uh, come under the uh, uh, that are pro prohibited by the second word. Um, there are various kinds of responses to that charge. Um, uh, one one response is that the uh, the person who's venerating the icon is not actually venerating the the uh, the object, the block of wood or the paint that's on the wood, but that block of wood and the paint that's on the wood is a means by which he has contact with the thing that's being depicted. Um, I don't think that the, that evades the force of the second word. And I, it's, my guess is that that would be the same thing that, a, that a, a worshiper of the golden calf would say. Say, I'm not, of course I'm not worshiping the gold or the calf. I'm worshiping the God who's represented by this golden calf. Um, I think ancient people would have been sophisticated enough to make that distinction. So it seems like that that doesn't really um, that that uh, response doesn't really work. I, also, the maybe the more substantive response has to do with the the disruption of the incarnation and the claim that the incarnation has got, in in the incarnation God has made Himself visible in a way that He wasn't. Um, we can't say, uh, as Moses says of Israel. Um, that there was no form seen. There was a form seen. He became flesh. There's a form seen on the mountain as he's uh, teaching uh, the Sermon on the Mount. There's a form seen on the Mount of Transfiguration within the glory. And so uh, the argument is that the incarnation upends the second word because God has made himself visible. Now uh, we can approach God through visible representations. Um, and it, uh, the uh, and the and the the uh, the the argument sometimes moves from that that if you're denying the uh, use of icons, then there's an implicit denial of the incarnation that's that's in that. 
Uh, first of all, there's a I think there's a there's a leap from saying God has made Himself visible to saying we now can approach God through these visible means and have special access to God or to the saints through these visible means. That's that doesn't follow. And I think also the the movement of the New Testament is generally not in that direction. Obviously, the New Testament emphasizes the um, the great mystery of God in human flesh and the mystery of God showing Himself in the face of Jesus Christ. Um, but nowhere does the New Testament uh, make the make the turn that this argument makes that because of that we now are uh, now the the relative importance of the eye and the ear has changed, and we're now guided by the eye rather than the ear. And it seems like the opposite is the case. I, uh, first, first John, one starts out with this uh, one of the highest descriptions of the uh, the uh, incarnation that we have in the New Testament. The Word of Life has made Himself tangible, visible, audible. We've touched Him. We've handled Him. Uh, but then, when as the text, as the as Paul, as John's uh, discussion moves on, uh, he says, "We have fellowship with the Father. If you want to have fellowship with the Father, you have fellowship with us, and you have fellowship with us by believing our proclamation." So then, there's this emphasis on the tangibility and the visibility of the Word. But if you want to have fellowship with the Word in the words after the words uh, departure, then you have to have fellowship with the apostles, and you do that by responding to the Word not by um, uh, having some contact with images. So it seems like the logic of the New Testament brings us back to the verbal revelation that the, New, that the Old Testament is also emphasizing. And the visual, visible elements of the Old Covenant, when we think about the tabernacle, the objects within the tabernacle, those things have now become concentrated and focused upon a people, that we are the site of God's presence and his dwelling. And so, rather than relating to um, visible images of Christ that we produce for ourselves, the emphasis is upon relating to God in the company of his people and his presence in our midst, um, that Paul can talk about the church, not just Christ, as a place where the word is being made flesh. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's... uh Again, the, the phenomenology is different. You, if Jim Jordan has pointed this out in his uh, writings on the second word, um, uh, the icons rarely speak back. Um, you might think that, think of things as you're looking at an icon that, that spark you to do certain things, but other people do sp- talk back, and there's, a, there's an interaction. You're back, in the, you're back in the point we were making earlier about... Uh, living things being audible. The, the mark of a living thing is that it makes sound. And uh, uh, that's the context that we're, that we're called to be in, in the New Covenant. Not communicating with God through um, images that are lifeless, but communicating with God through living images, which are other people. And I think that's the, that's the positive direction that we should go and think about the second word. I guess there's a positive negative side to this. We are created as images of God. And so, worship of another thing as an image of God is profoundly self-alienating. Uh, we're, we're attributing a glory to uh, um, a, a constructed object that is actually our glory. Um, so that, that's kind of the negative side. Of it. But the positive side is, how do you, how do you keep the, 
second word, how do you properly honor the image of God? You properly honor the image of God in your brother, your sister, or your neighbor. Uh, that's where the that's the image that you venerate. That's the image that you bow to. Uh, that's the image that you kiss. Um, and all those liturgical gestures, as it were, are properly uh, done. In, uh, they're they're done toward human beings rather than to constructed uh, icons or statues in the Bible. You, you shouldn't bow to or kiss Baal, but you should bow to and kiss your brother, greet one another with a holy kiss. So there's a the second word kind of opens up into a positively opens up into a, a way of thinking about the uh, second great commandment that we should love our neighbor as ourselves and uh, that we should love Christ in our neighbors. Part of the prophetic critique of idolatry is that those who worship them become like them. Um, there's a death and insensibility to the image that there is not, as you've noted, to the true God. Um, but there's also a way in which when we see Christ, as it talks about in First John again, we will be like him and we'll see him as he is. Until that point, our relationship to him is not according to the organ of sight, um, but according to his word heard in our presence. And how do we, um, how can we relate the concept of Christ as the image of God to this in a, in a fuller sense, we can recognize at this point that it's God has not given us uh, an image of Christ in the Bible. He's given us his word. He's given us a portrait of Christ in a narrative form rather than in terms of a detailed description of how he looks in each respect or even his personality in, in the way that we might think about it as moderns. How can we relate Christ as the true image of God, as the fulfillment of God's self-revelation without denying the second commandment. Yeah, the, the, the direction I would, I'd want to go is that what you had uh, suggested earlier that we're now in a situation where all the, all the Old Testament signs and images were, are fulfilled in a people uh, where Christ's image is imprinted on our brothers and sisters in the church. And that those are the, that's, those are the places we encounter the living image of Christ. Um, I think we, can, we could make a kind of sacramental liturgical, go in a sacramental liturgical direction. The Lord's Supper is not a place where we're encountering an image. The Lord's Supper is not something to be seen primarily. It's something to be received and eaten and drunk. But there's still a, especially as we're gathered at the Lord's table, there's a, there's a manifestation of Christ's character and image in, again, in the gathered people in the church. Do you think that we can maybe see the first commandment as especially addressing assaults upon the first person of the Trinity, the second upon the second? Yeah, I think the first three actually do work together. And I was going to talk about this in the next, in the next episode, but the, I think the first three commandments kind of sketch out different, different forms of idolatry. And I think you can generally relate them to the uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father as uh, the one who is to be worshipped, the Son is the image of the Father, and the Spirit. The Son is identified with the name of God, I think, more directly, but the Spirit is the one who imprints the name on us, and so that we bear the name of God by virtue of the Spirit's dwelling in us. And so uh, the third word would link up with the, uh, with the work of the Spirit. So I, 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 yeah, I think in general, uh, there's, a, there's a correspondence there. 
the the last part of uh, the commandment is uh, it talks it talks about uh, the Lord being provoked to jealousy, but it also gives this uh, generational warning and promise, and uh, there's a intergenerational danger threat to those who hate God, and in context, the ones who hate God are the ones who are devoting themselves to images rather than to the living God, uh, and loving kindness to thousands. And I think we should understand thousands of generations of those who love him and keep the commandments, which in context means particularly those who are uh, prostrating and ser- prostrating to and serving the, the living God. So there's a there's a link between the faithfulness to the second word and uh, and the uh, continuity of generations and the continuity of sin on the one hand, the continuity of blessing on the other. I think one dimension of this that we see played out in the Book of Kings, particularly on the curse side of it. It is a curse that you have this third and fourth generation consequence for the sins of uh, sins of the fathers. But there's also a, a, uh, there's a kindness or a compassion in that. The evil uh, dynasties of the Northern Kingdom don't last beyond three or four generations. They're all devoted to images. They're all de- they all continue to worship uh, the golden calves at Dan and Bethel. They continue in the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebad. Uh, but they don't last more than three or four generations. And that means that uh, although there's a, that curse is played out over several generations during the dynasty, the dynasty is not allowed to last for a thousand generations. So there's a, there's a, uh, in a sense, there's a kind of inverted blessing in that for Israel, not for, the, <laughs> not for those who are worshiping the idols, but for, for Israel as a whole. One of the things I want, would want to also want to bring up is, I'll go back to your comment about our future hope to be transformed into likeness to Christ when we see him face to face. So there, there's an eschatological hope of sight. That's what Paul's getting at too when he talks about we walk now by faith and not by sight. Faith is the confidence of things not yet seen, Hebrews 11 says. So there's a, there's a hope for a visual realization, a visual uh, encounter with Christ and with his glory. I think that that has something to do with the uh, link between the second commandment, second word, and these generational promises, the, the generational promise and the generational threat. Uh, there's uh, the worship of images as some kind of in, uh, effort to grasp the eschaton, as the as the old conservative, is it uh, Ferglin says, uh, trying to imminentize the eschaton, trying to bring the eschaton to the present, trying to freeze freeze things now in the present as if they were, as if we had already arrived at the eschaton. Uh, there's something in the worship of images that has that kind of overly anticipated eschatology. And I think that has to be related somehow to the generational curses, although I'm not sure I can work out the specifics of that. Our discussion here has confirmed something that I discovered when I worked on this for my book on the Ten Words. Uh, and that is the, I went into it thinking, you know, this is about images. This is a liturgical rule or liturgical law. And the more I probed into it, the broader it became and the more significant it became. And uh, as we've already discussed, it bumps up against contemporary cultural concerns in a very profound way. Uh, It has uh, significant uh, implications for our understanding of time uh, and uh, uh, and, uh, our understanding of our our ethical responsibilities to our neighbors. So I think that it's unfortunately been narrowed to a debate about uh, one, the, 
I mean, it is the central concern of the commandment is this liturgical issue, but if we get too caught up in that, we miss some of the breadth of the commandment. It, it touches on a lot of uh, significant areas of our Christian life. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.